0: The title of our message this morning is a problem, a plan, and a promise. If you're taking notes, it's a problem, a plan, and a promise. A dictionary definition of the word problem is a matter or situation regarded as unwelcome or harmful and needing to be dealt with and overcome. Back in 1970, some of you are old enough to probably have seen this on television... Most of us in this room have read about it in American history, but in 1970, there were three men who found themselves in a precarious situation, and millions of people watched them on television throughout the world. It was on April 11, 1970, that the Apollo 13 spacecraft was launched into outer space from the Kennedy Space Center in South Florida. It was the seventh manned flight, and it was going to be the third lunar landing of the Apollo program. Liftoff went well. Things were going well. But then, about 56 hours into the mission, about 210,000 miles away from planet Earth, a serious problem occurred. During a routine scheduled maintenance of the air tanks, one of the oxygen tanks had a short inside it, which caused it to blow the cone off the tank, which damaged it and also damaged another tank. Twenty-six seconds after that, all of us are familiar with the phrase, Houston, we have a problem. And actually, it was Jack Swigert who was the command module pilot, but actually he said, okay, Houston, uh, we've had a problem here. Two minutes later, as they were looking outside the spacecraft, they saw that the service module, one of the panels had been blown off, and they were venting oxygen into outer space. You know, we don't have to be um, astronauts to realize that if you don't have oxygen in outer space, if you don't have oxygen underwater, even if you don't have oxygen here on planet Earth, your time is limited. So the NASA ground crew, scientists, and engineers from all over worked together tirelessly. A lot of people didn't sleep to solve the problem. They were able to remedy the situation, and they brought the Apollo 13 crew home, safe and sound, problem solved. President Richard Nixon, as he was giving out awards to those who were involved in the fixing of the problem and also to the astronauts that were involved in that situation, said this. He said, these men are alive and on earth because of their dedication and because at the critical moments the people of that team were wise enough and self-possessed enough to make the right decisions their extraordinary feat is a tribute to man's ingenuity to his resourcefulness and to his courage well without a doubt human ingenuity man's resourcefulness and courage solves problems I mean it has over the history of the world we've always as humans found ways to fix a problem we've found ways to extend life we've found ways to cure diseases. We've found ways to build enormous buildings and cities. Some people like problem-solving so much they go into a career of problem-solving, like engineers or scientists, doctors, counselors, counselors, and humans over the course of history have found ways to successfully fix problems. All of us in this room have problems, and all of us have problems on a daily basis that Perhaps you've been able to fix, perhaps not the magnitude of being 200,000 miles in outer space. But we have first world problems. The battery on my BMW won't crank up my car, right? Or the internet in this place is way too slow. Or I cracked the screen on my iPhone. Now, some people's problems in this room are, are more dire than that. More troubling than that, perhaps you have relationship problems or financial problems, health problems. And the immense pressure of trying to figure out how to solve your problem, a lot of times leads to other problems that you didn't know would occur. But yet, if you've ever solved a problem, there's great satisfaction in doing that. There was a quote that um, I saw earlier this week in regards to problem problems. You know, being a problem solver, and I kind of kind of resonated with me as I get older. There's people, you know, young people are telling me, so you're going to regret that in the morning, Dad, or whatever. So the quote says, when I hear people say, you're going to regret that in the morning, I just sleep till noon because I'm a problem solver, right? Okay? But yet there, but there are problems that we as humans can't solve, even through our ingenuity, even through our intelligence, or even through our ability. God-given ingenuity, God-given intelligence, God-given talents. There's some problems that we won't be able to solve. We can't solve. There's problems that you have right now, unfortunately, that you'll die with. Because there'll be a problem that you can't resolve. Job 14.1 says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Our text this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 26. And at first you may think, well, this is an odd place to be going into because it's at the end of a story. But I want to make a promise to you that if you just stay with me, it'll be clear at the end. But before we read God's Word, let's go to a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to open up your Word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we sing songs about your glory and your righteousness and the gap that uh, spans between us as sinful people and you as a holy God, that this morning, Lord, if we're born again, we can just praise your name for the, for the problem that we had, the plan that you provided, and the promise that goes along with that. And help us to see that from your word this morning. Bless this time. I pray, God, you remove me. Speak through me, Lord Jesus. And Lord, when we leave this place, we can say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Joshua 6, verses 15 through 27, actually, we'll go to. And on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! Shout! But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. "...both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, "'Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her.' So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel." And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city. Jericho, at the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is a familiar story to us if you grew up in the church. Joshua in the battle of Jericho, you even sang the song, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, you remember that? Growing up as kids, yeah. We sang that song, and it was an exciting story, the flannel graph pictures, right? Right? Remember all that, the finger puppets, all that stuff. And so here we are at the climax of what happened. Actually, the story actually begins in the first chapter of Joshua and ends in this dramatic climax of the walls coming down in chapter 6. And in this section of scripture in Joshua 1 through 6, we see a problem, we see a plan, and we see a promise. So, a little backstory. So, how did we get here to the final, the seventh and final day of the Battle of Jericho? doesn't seem like much of a battle as you read it, but here's what's happened. So, this is the second generation of Israelites who have been redeemed by God through Moses from slavery in Egypt. The first generation, as you know, failed to follow through, and they were almost there, but they failed failed to follow through on God's plan and His promise. And they rebelled against God and their lack of faith. God sent them wandering around the desert for 40 years till He called them all out. And now here we see Joshua, who is Moses' second in command. And Joshua now has the task of leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, Canaan. Now the city of Jericho is considered to be one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Its ruins can be found today uh, in the West Bank of Israel. But many people believe that this is just a legend, just a myth, just a a nice bedtime story. Some archaeologists believe that at the time of Joshua and the Israelites entering into Canaan land, that there were no walls in Jericho because the walls were destroyed by the Egyptians a hundred years prior. But actually, there have been three major archaeological digs in the site, or the tale Jericho. And they've come up with some remarkable findings that coincide exactly with what the Scripture says. Now, we don't need archaeology to confirm that the Scripture is true, because the Scripture is true. But don't you like it when you get that and you go, yeah, right? So what they found that matches up exactly with the Bible's account of this event is the location of Jericho. Where it was located, across The Jordan. They've actually found the red brick mud bricks that were on top of the retaining wall that fell down. They also found earthen vessels containing burnt barley. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And they realized that there's three foot of ash because the city was burned, just like what is given in the account of the Bible. Yet the story for the Israelites... It begins with a problem. Their first problem, this second generation, who is believing God for what he's going to do. And they said, we'll follow you as you follow God, Joshua. The first big problem was the Jordan River. The Jordan River at this time of year in this region is overflowing its banks. It's during the harvest period. And during the harvest period, during this time, which would be spring there, you got the snow melt from the mountains coming down. And now instead of the Jordan River being about 90 to 100 feet across and only about 10 feet deep, it's, it's expanded. So now it's quite wider, it's quite deeper, and it's extremely fast-moving. From a human standpoint, this is impossible to do because it's not just one or two people going over in a dinghy. This is millions of people. You've got children, you've got babies, you've got old people, you've got carts. You've got animals all trying to get across a river. Well, God's timing is just never the timing that we want, is it? Why didn't God just wait till the river had subsided so they could just get across easy? Because, you know, God's plans is not our plan, and God's timing's definitely not our timing. And God does things so that He gets the glory when we don't steal it. So this was a problem. The second problem that faced the children of Israel was the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho was a highly fortified city. It sat on two major crossroads, one going north and one going across to the coast and through the hills, the hill country. It was, in Joshua's day, it was actually not just one wall. There were two walls around the city. And the city of Jericho at the time was about six by nine miles, okay? Kind of an oblong sort of shape. It had two walls. There was a lower wall which sat on a retaining wall that the retaining wall was set down and they had uh, red mud bricks that made up a wall that was about six feet thick. And it reached to a height of about 30 feet. Then the second wall, okay, was 12 feet thick. It was on a retaining wall as well. And then it was about 30 feet high. And so you can go to the archaeological findings and see this stuff because they've dug this stuff out. It's just like what the Bible talks about. So here it is. There's no way that they're going to be able to scale this mountain. So just for an illustration example, if you, if you look up, if you can see to the ceiling from the lights, the, this ceiling looks pretty tall in here, but this ceiling's actually only about 25 feet high. So as the Israelites, as they came upon the city of Jericho and they viewed the walls, as they looked up. This would have been from the ground where they were standing up, 50 feet. An unscalable wall. And actually in Joshua 6, 1, the Bible tells us this. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This seemingly describes Israel's hopeless situation. God told us to go capture the city, but how can we capture the city? Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, you see there were some walled cities that the nation of Israel had captured, 60, as a matter of fact. But as you read the text, because I go like, well, they captured these other cities they had walled cities. But I went back to the text. Those kings and their pride came out to meet Israel in battle. That was their demise. Israel didn't have to scale walls. But now, if you remember the story, Rahab the harlot, as she housed the spies, the two guys that came in to spy out the land, she told these two guys, she said, Look, we know what you guys did across the river, and we are totally freaked out. Our hearts are melting. That's why the city was shut up. And actually, if you were going to be in a city to survive a siege, man, Jericho was the place that you'd want to be. The walls were so high, so thick, that you couldn't get in. And actually, it was prepared for seed. They had a spring that was inside the city. And remember, I told you that uh, this was during the springtime. And in that region, in the springtime, the barley grows first. And so what's really interesting, and actually I have right here, this is a piece of uh, pottery from the exact same time period. And actually, this is a piece of pottery from the city of Jericho itself. 1400 B.C., people were handling this. Ethan Berthume, who, this is, on, this is on tape, so if he goes to jail, he goes to jail, but he got this, okay, in the West Bank, all right? Sorry about that, Ethan. Um, but this, this very well could have contained barley. So what's interesting about the Battle of Jericho is, is the evidence from archaeology says, yeah, the Bible's right. Remember, this battle lasted seven days. That's not really much of a siege when you're talking about historical battles. And what they found in the ruins and the ashes of Jericho is big pots full of burnt barley. Full. Not used. So it goes to show you that the, the siege that they were expecting never happened because the battle, seven days, and it was over. So the children of Israel are coming across this Incredible, impossible task. No one's coming out to fight because there's no need to. They're just going to wait them out. The harvest is complete. There's no barley in the fields for the Israeli army to go get and eat. There's nothing. From a human standpoint, the conquest of the city of Jericho was impossible. These were big problems. Problems of the Israelites, no matter their intelligence, no matter that they were God's chosen people, no matter of their courage, They could not solve these problems themselves. But God had a plan, and the first plan was to get the children of Israel across the Jordan River. So if you read Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, we're given the instructions by God to Joshua what they need to do. Now, as we know, God's plan is never our plan. God's timing is never our timing, but God's plan is always right, and God's timing is always perfect. So what does he tell them to do? He says, take the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence in the camp. Have the Levites take it out and then walk out to the flooding, raging Jordan River where the current's swift. You don't know if you're going to drop off in a pothole and just put your toes into the brink of the water and God's going to dry it up. And what does he do? He dries it up. The Bible says about 16 miles upriver, there's a place called Adam and the water's piled up there. And millions of Israelis crossed over with wagons and animals and children because that was God's plan. You start to think about it. You're waiting on a plan like that. In your mind, you're thinking, Lord, is this really going to work? Plus, who wants to step out into a flood zone? I know two guys who actually attempted to fish Montana Creek a couple years ago during the spring. One guy was going to do it in a raft. And one guy was going to do it in a river kayak, and he had no experience in a river kayak whatsoever. Okay, the experiment failed. Luckily, that they both survived. But stepping out into something like that, what did the Israelites do? They had to trust, and they had to exercise their faith in God to realize that God's bigger than the problem of the Jordan River. The next plan from God was the city of Jericho. As I explained, that was impossible. So they're sitting there staring up. What's God's plan? Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Let's listen to God's plan. Joshua 6, verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No, went, no one went out. No one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I haven't given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of value. If I was Joshua, I'd go like, What? You've given this to me? Doesn't look like it, God, right? And this is God's plan for the children of Israel. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So really, this is God's plan. Okay, guys, I want you to just go out, walk around the city. It may take you 45 minutes to an hour, come back. Do that for six days. The seventh day, I want you to walk around seven times. And I tell you what, we'll play a little music. We'll have some horn music going on. And then I want you to just Shout. And the wall is going to come down. That would not be my plan. Right? My plan would be like, hey, let's get some rocks and sticks and stuff and see if we can throw them up there on the wall. See if we can build a battering ram. Let's see if we can talk enough trash to those guys to get them to come down to fight us. Right? That would be my plan. I see someone thinks my plan is foolish, but that's okay. So the... Or let's make, a, let's make a siege machine. Let's build ramparts and get up to the top. So there's a big problem. And they could not do it by themselves. And so God gives them the plan, and they had to follow the plan meticulously. Now, I didn't say this, but someone said, also if you read this, it, it says, and there should be no talking as you walk around. So a friend of mine said, I guess there was no women in the army back then. I didn't say that. That just came to my mind. I'll get in trouble when I get home. All right? Now, so, but God was bigger than the Israelites' problem. Both of those problems. But then there was a promise. And what's really interesting, the promise is connected to the problem as much as it's connected to the plan. You see, the promise that God gave the Israelites was given way, 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 way before the Israelites even encountered the problem they were facing. And because God made a promise... The plan had already been made and put into action before the Israelites even stuck their feet in the Jordan River, before the Israelites were even slaves in Egypt. So what was this promise? Let's go to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan... I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Over 500 years earlier, God had made a promise to Abraham. Abraham who's the father of the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram... What's really interesting to hear, you notice the word Abram, not Abraham. This is before God changed his name. And we were talking about this in Sunday school. God, who is sovereign and providential, is in control of all things, called out Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan. He worshipped false gods, the moon god. But yet God in His sovereignty and His grace and His mercy and His plan sought out a sinner to work His plan so he says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That part of the promise includes us. We're part of all the families of the earth that are going to be blessed. And we're blessed through a promise That we'll get to in just a minute. So the promise that God gave Abraham was the promise of the land. was the promise of becoming a great nation. And the promise of something that's going to happen that's going to bless all the nations of the world. But you know, it took a long time for this promise to, to come into play. The children of Israel were slaves for 400 years. you think they were thinking about that promise of God? I'm sure they were. Sometimes when you receive a promise or someone says something to you. Sometimes you can get caught up in the problems that you have that you forget completely about the promise. And then, sometimes a promise can take so long to take place that you may even think that the person who made the promise either forgot about the promise or they lied about the promise. But however, in our case as believers, in God's case, the Bible tells us that God always keeps His promises and God never lies Numbers twenty three nineteen says God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Paul wrote to Titus in Titus one two in regards to in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 6 18. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Because God always keeps his promises, because God can never lie, God always has a plan. God's plan always works. Without fail. So what is this takeaway then from hearing Joshua about a problem and a plan (coughs) and a promise? I want to say this. This doesn't mean, as some people teach this, that God's going to make your Jerichos fall down. He's going to make your financial problems just fall down like the the walls of Jericho. He's going to make your health problems just fall down. He's going to make your relationship problems just fall down. Know that that's not the case. Like I said earlier... Some of the problems that you have right now, you'll keep with you till the day. <coughs> excuse me, that you die. Some of your problems in this room are horrible. I know that. Some of you have health issues. Some of you have relationship issues. Some of you have financial issues. And I don't want to say this in regard to demeaning your problem <coughs> that you're facing on this earth. But I want to tell you this morning that your biggest problem is this. I want you to listen to this. Your biggest problem is this, that God is holy and you are not. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the human race, us, lost and without hope, to ever enter heaven with a holy, righteous God. The Bible says that only the righteous will see God. So then that begs the question... Who are the righteous? Well, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3. He's quoting Isaiah. He says, who's righteous? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. <clears throat> All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. How many are righteous? The Bible says no one. Well, what, what, what about me? I come to church, I read my Bible, I've been born again. Well, in layman's terms, or symbolically speaking, our position before a holy, righteous God is this. The Jordan River is too wide, it's too deep, and it's too swift for you to cross over. You have no hope. The walls of Jericho are too high, unbreachable, unattainable. In other words, you and I are not fit for heaven. So where did our problem begin? Well, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. This is where our biggest problem began. And you know the story. God creates Adam in his own image. Then he makes Eve out of his rib. And Adam and Eve are living in a spectacular place. It's the Garden of Eden that God had specifically prepared, the Bible tells us, to put man in. This was a special creation outside of creation that they're in, and it's wonderful there. And they're created in such a way that they're perfect, not that they can't sin because they have proclivity to sin, but they're in an arena that you would think, and you've probably often thought, man, if I was Adam and Eve, I never would have touched that. Yeah, you would have because you're just like them. Yeah, So the Bible says that God gave them one rule. It says There's a, you can eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. Because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They walked past that tree every day. And they saw that. The Bible said that it was pleasant look upon. And it was desire to make one wise. Here comes a serpent who was possessed by Satan himself, I believe. He starts talking to Eve and he says, did God say that you can't eat of any of this awesome fruit in the garden? So he says, no, he didn't say that. He just said, we can't eat of everything, but we can't touch this tree. She adds to what God says because if we touch it, we'll die. <clears throat> but God said, don't eat it. So the Satan says, you know, let me just tell you something. Let me, let me give you some knowledge you don't know. God's trying to keep you down because he knows that the day that you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be just like God. What that mean, meant is that you'll be able to decide what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. You won't have to depend on God. You can take care of your own problem. So the Bible says that Eve looked and when she saw, when she realized this, what this tree would do, she took of it, she ate it and she gave it to her husband. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Their relationship that they have with God is now broken. And man's plan to fix the problem of sin is not a very good plan. But it's a plan that all of us would probably try. Their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and they were shamed. Sin causes guilt, causes shame, causes depression, causes broken relationships. So Adam is going to fix it. So what do they do? They take fig leaves to try to hide their nakedness. And then the Bible says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This was a sound that I believe they were familiar with. They had a relationship with God. And now that relationship is broken. And man tries to fix that problem by hiding instead of confessing. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't blame that really on Adam because we'd have done the same thing had we been there because we're exactly the same way. But this is where our problem comes in. The biggest problem that you'll ever face is the problem that God is holy and you are not because we're sinners We can't do enough good things to get to heaven. Isaiah 64 6 tells us that our righteousness, the things that we try to do to make ourselves justified before God, are as filthy rags. We can't do anything to get to heaven, it's impossible. That's a very, very big problem. So, is there a plan? Is there a plan for us like the plan God had for the Israelites? There is a plan. <clears throat> the plan actually is found in the same place that the problem occurred. Look at Genesis 3, 15. This, in theological terms, is considered the first mention of the gospel in the whole Bible. <clears throat> it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his hill. This is talking about no other than the promised Messiah, the Son of God, God Himself, Jesus Christ, who's going to come and be mankind's problem solver. Who would Jesus be? Well, as I said, Jesus was God's only begotten Son, God Himself. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He came to die a substitutionary death. That means He came to die... In your place. He came to die in your place. He came to die in my place. Because our death would have meant nothing at all. And why did he do that? So that we could be forgiven, so that his righteousness now could become our righteousness, because we have no righteousness. There's nothing good in us. That's the only way that man can enter heaven. This was God's perfect plan. And God's timing of his plan was perfect. If it was not a plan that was put into action right there, it was not a reactionary plan. You know, just like at the Battle of Jericho, God didn't say, Okay, well, you guys, uh, you guys just walk around for about a week and I'll figure this thing out. All right? God didn't do that. Okay, The plan was already set in motion before the problem ever occurred. And the same thing in regards to our problem that occurred back in Genesis chapter 3... Because that plan was put into action before you and I were even born, before you and I ever realized that we had a problem. If you look in First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Peter, a man who walked with God for three and a half years, who he had problems of his own, okay, he knew exactly what he was saying here to be the truth because it's like, just think if you could be with Jesus Christ in the flesh and absorbing all his knowledge for three and a half years. That's a seminary I'd want to go to, right? So Peter wrote this, For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, and I'm reading from the KJV, it's on the screen, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the plan of God, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained, here it is, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who, by him, do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God as opposed to being in your own problem-solving abilities. Well, what about a promise? So we, we talked about the problem. We talked about the plan. So where does the promise come in? Well, as I said, just like in Joshua, the plan is connected directly to The promise. Genesis 3.15 explains what's going to happen. That's the plan. But the promise of a coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, as I said, who will be mankind's problem solver. Without the plan to solve the problem of sin, which is Jesus Christ, there's no promise. The Bible clearly states that you can't go to heaven. There is no name under heaven whereby men must be saved other than through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus talked about this, the wide gate and the narrow gate. Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? He says, I never knew you. You guys were on the wrong plan. 1 John 2, 25 says this, And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. So how should this impact me, this idea... About a problem, a plan, and a promise. Well, if you're a believer this morning and you've been born again, that means you've realized your problem and you've accepted the plan. That's Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for your sin. And you know that's the only way to get to heaven. Here's how it should impact me. Is that I had such a problem That I could not fix myself. Yet God in His sovereignty and His providence, looked down the poor of time. Created the plan to save me. Why don't I rejoice? Why don't I have the joy of my salvation? God always keeps His promises and does not lie. Why does that that make us excited? Because that means I'm I'm secure for eternity. I'm not going to lose my salvation. I can't lose my salvation. A man after God's own heart, David, who committed the sin of adultery and murder because of God's steadfast love and mercy. I would bet my bottom dollar you'll see David in heaven. We should rejoice. We should be telling other people about what God did for our problem with His plan and the promise. But why don't we get excited about that? Why, why aren't we excited about that? You know, in regards to the story of the Israelites crossing over that first problem, the Jordan River, God told Joshua, he said, look, I want you to take and get 12 stones out of the river. And take them, put them on the other side. And it's just a pile of stones, a heap of 12 stones. And the reason you want to have those there, so when your children ask you, hey, Daddy, what are these stones for? They point to what God did for the Israelites that day. See, everything we do as believers, we're just stones. We're just a pile of stones. Everything we, should, everything we do should point to the majesty, the holiness, the righteousness, the sovereignty, and the steadfast love of God. But what do people see in us, believers? Do they see that? Do they see a memorial that should stand forever like those stones across the Jordan River? Your problem has been solved with a promise. Amen, right, sister? Amen. Amen. Think about that, there's songs that we just sang. If you think about only a holy God, how can I stand in front of? I can't unless I have Jesus Christ's righteousness covering me. That's something to get excited about. As we say down where I'm from, that will make you want to charge hell with a squirt gun. That's exciting. Now to the unbeliever, how does this affect you? Well, this has devastating effects on you. Because your biggest problem is that God is holy and you are not. A righteous God cannot have communion with unrighteousness. That's a problem that you can't solve. I don't care how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how correct You cannot solve this problem. As we said, no amount of good works or deeds given to the poor, none of that is going to work for you. Your problem is leading you straight to hell. I want you to go in closing to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is the day when the church was birthed. Peter, as we know, um, as he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, had some problems of his own. Right? He denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. It's a big problem, but guess what? God knew he was going to do that. Remember, God even told him he was going to do that. God had a plan. God had a promise. Now we see Peter standing in front of thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. And guess what he's preaching? He's preaching the same thing that you guys heard this morning. You have a problem. God has a plan with a promise. First, once you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to read verses 22 through 24 and then verse 36. So Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. Woo, here it is. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now go down to verse 36. As Peter's continued to preaching, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, these people this day, they heard that they, there was a problem. They heard about the plan that's associated with a promise. And so what's their response? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, beloved, this should be your response. Because if it's not, hell will be your home for eternity. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They knew their position before a holy, righteous God, and they had no hope. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, they cry out, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. For the promise is for you And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this morning, God is bigger than our problem. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, let him be bigger than your problem.